Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and... I'm hoping that some of you guys have a way to take some notes because I'm going to cover various passages today and I think it'd be good. I think you're going to want to go back and, and look at some of these passages and try to understand some of the things that I'm talking about because these are things that are not necessarily talked about often at church. Um, it's, I mean, people do, but... It's not very often that you're hearing subject matter like this. And so um, it would be good to take notes and then go back on your own time and study through and form your own um, thoughts on some of these non-essential issues because it deals with ancient world history. It deals with um, Israel and, and, and uh, even before Israel existed, it deals with uh, the nature of, of spiritual and supernatural things. So, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, and we're going to cover a lot today. If you would stand as we read the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that our eyes would be opened today, that our ears would be ears of understanding, and Lord, show us what the truth of your word is. We, we want nothing more than to honor you in, in what we believe about your word and what we believe about you. And what we believe about your creation. Father, we know that if we align with your word, that we align with you. So, Father, let that be the case today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, looking at that passage, the first thing I want to point out in this passage is that word gifts. If you look at that, you'll notice that the word gifts is italicized. And what that means is that that word is not actually in the original text, all right? So what the translators do is they try to bring clarity, uh, and, and oftentimes they'll add words in like that uh, to bring clarity. But it actually would read concerning spirituals, all right? And the grammar is such that if it could also be understood in this way, concerning spiritual things or concerning things related to the Spirit. So he's about to instruct the church at Corinth about spiritual things and things of which he does not want them to be ignorant. And of course, part of this discussion is uh, spiritual gifts. They are spiritual things. They have something to do with spiritual matters. And so uh, He's going to discuss these spiritual gifts that Christ has given to the church in order to serve Him and to serve one another. That's the whole purpose of the spiritual gifts. But we should recognize that it goes beyond even that. Paul's instruction on spiritual things, spiritual matters, encompasses a wide range of issues concerning 
Christ's church. What I'm going to speak about today will be different. It'll be interesting. Some of it um, you might even consider a little weird, okay? Um, some of it is debated among biblical scholars, and some of it will be challenging for, for us to believe at times. But it is necessary to lay a proper foundation of understanding of the spectrum of spiritual things that are beneficial and build up the body of Christ, but also spiritual things that deceive and dismantle and disable the local body of Christ. And I think Scripture is clear. Um, and the reason I say it may be difficult for some of you to consider is because it kind of requires you to step outside of your, your normal mode of thinking, all right? It will require you to step into beyond a three-dimensional thinking and the three-dimensional world that we live in and to kind of see things from a spiritual point of view uh, in the fourth dimension, the dimension of the Spirit. It'll involve contemplating things uh, that you cannot see. And according to Scripture, though, we know are absolutely real. They exist. And we're warned about it in the pages of Scripture. In considering this subject today, I, I really want to do so responsibly uh, and not be dramatic or showy about it or place more emphasis on it than is required, but rather I want to take Scripture at face value. So I want to begin by giving you an introduction and proper context for how to think through these spiritual things, and there's much to consider. For instance, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you'll turn to chapter 10 there, and look at verse 20, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. Paul writes this, I say that the things which Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So here Paul is clearly stating that the Gentiles were making sacrifices to what they believed to be gods, all right, but were in fact demons. And notice he also states that the Corinthians themselves in their worship, which has all the markers of Christianity in the early church, he's warning them that they could in fact share in demons, that they too could go that route. Paul then warns them that perverting or misusing communion uh, as a mere religious exercise could swing their own worship in that church in the direction of a demonically manipulated type of false worship. And his charge to them was to choose if they were going to honor God or if they were going to give in to their flesh in the context of the local church. And he called it like this. It was to drink the cup or partake of the table of demons. That's what he says. Remember what we learned last week, to eat and drink something was to allow it or accept it completely, to believe it, all right? And in this case, to partake of the demonic in the house of the Lord. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 21, that's the verse I'm referencing. Paul says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, fully accepting the things that the demons are, are trying to manipulate the body of Christ. So in, in 1 Timothy 4, if you'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy and warns him of something the Spirit has been explicit about. 
Here's what he says. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So let's break this down. The Spirit is being explicit. And that word explicit actually means in specific terms. It's clearly laid out. It's expressly stated. You might say it to your children this way. I want to make something very clear to you. All right? Being explicit about it. Instruction. In later times, there will be those who fall away from the true faith, which is sound biblical doctrine. And instead, they will pay attention to fallen spirits and so be deceived and will instead buy into doctrines of demons. The spiritual battle is always waged over the truth. We either worship in the influence of the Holy Spirit and truth, or the other option for any church, for any believer, would be, uh, as Paul instructs, to worship under the influence of false spirits and under the doctrine of demons, lies and deception. These scriptural examples are not mere figures of speech or metaphors. There is a real presence of dark, deceitful, demonic forces. And we cannot be ignorant of this. Or we do so at our own peril. The church at Corinth was in more danger than most in their day, mainly because of the culture that they were saved out of. Many of them struggled greatly with leaving the world, their flesh their old way of life behind once they became a follower of Christ or they they proclaimed to be a Christian. And this caused serious issues in the local body of believers there at Corinth and it was wreaking havoc within the ranks of the church. The majority of Paul's first letters, uh, a letter to the Corinthian believers deals with these various issues and they were in fact as ambassadors of Christ leaving a black mark on the gospel on the work of Christ, and on the purpose of the church. For instance, if you were to wake up on any given Sunday morning and and you were to say to your spouse, let's go to the first church of Corinth, it might go a little something like this, if you can use your imagination. You, You walk in the front doors at the appointed time, but you find that the wealthiest folks of this local church have already been there for quite some time. There's apparently already been a love feast. Uh, what was earlier in the morning a, a smorgasbord of, of, of huge, uh, a huge buffet offering various kinds of hot and cold meats and hors d'oeuvres and, and desserts and all of that stuff. But to your dismay, you find that the food has already been eaten. There's nothing left for you, and more tragically, there's nothing left for the poor who are just now arriving who haven't had a decent meal to eat all week. You notice over in the corner a a group of well-to-dos that look awfully satisfied because they're laughing, they've had their fill. In fact, um, beyond that, they're even gluttonous in their behavior. They are shaming themselves by flaunting their wealth, and the poor folks are sitting on the other side of the room with their stomachs growling, and they are harboring bitterness toward the wealthier class in the church because supposedly they're supposed to love us, but they conspired together to get here early and eat all the food and leave us with nothing. And we're the ones who need it the most. So they're harboring bitterness over that. Not only that, there are some over in in one side of the room that are intoxicated, that like fall down drunk 
at church, acting a fool, loud and obnoxious. And some are high, some are in the midst of all of this, uh, arguments breaking out over various uh, issues. Some are arguing about which philosopher, which were, as we covered, were the celebrities of their day, which philosopher was the best, which was the most gifted, the most persuasive, which philosopher was the most entertaining, and they're, they're having a quarrel openly about this, and then across the room in the other direction, they're arguing about, about preachers, about the, the apostles, and which one is best. Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? Is it Cephas? Uh, you know, some aligning with Christ, and they're having an argument about this, hassling one another. They were worshiping in a way the Lord has not dictated, and they have chosen to use the gathering of the saints as a time of entertainment and feeding of their own flesh. The church there at Corinth is chaotic, and then in the midst of the chaos, to add insult to injury, they begin to take the Lord's Supper together, and what was supposed to bring unity to the local body of Christ, unifying under the finished atoning work of Christ, together as a body of believers, well, they've now made a complete and total mockery of it. They begin the regular worship time and people here, here and there are standing up. People are talking at the same time. Some yelling. Some are speaking in ecstatic utterances, uh, mumbling and murmuring. Some are convulsing in a trance-like state and yelling out predictions of the future. So while someone over here is, is trying to give a prophecy, someone over here to your left is singing a song out loud. And there are weak men, weak leadership allowing this disorder to continue in the local church at Corinth. And a few women are yelling at the front of the room at the weak leadership, giving them the what for. Complete disarray, total chaos, overwhelming confusion, and inevitably you look at your spouse and you say, we are never coming back here ever, ever again. Okay, And that's what Paul talks about. When an unbeliever comes in here, they're going to think, you're barbarians, you're crazy people, you're mad. And this is exactly the type of thing that was going on at the church in Corinth. And that's why Paul says in chapter 11, verse 17, he says, When you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. You actually think you're doing a good thing, but you're, you're harming the cause of Christ in your behavior. It's a travesty, a mockery of what Christ intended His church to be and what Christ intended worship to be. So over the next few chapters here in 1 Corinthians, Paul strongly rebukes them. He has to. He has to lay out Christ's intention for proper conduct and worship within the local church. He has to correct them and instruct them that their selfishness, their flesh, must be put to death and they must instead serve one another with a sacrificial love, the kind of love that Christ gave us an example of. Much of the issue was that their former Greek religion invaded that local church assembly. And as we learned earlier, with that Greek religion came the influence of the demonic. Since these spirits are ancient and since God's people had a history with these beings, I feel it's necessary to review some of the things that we've covered in the past so you can 
fully understand what this church at Corinth was facing. And honestly, today we're not much different than they are. The church faces the same type of thing that they were facing. So let's go back to the very beginning. And I would encourage you to to jot down scriptures as I say them, because you're probably not going to have time to turn there right away. I'll read some of them and reference some of them. But we all know the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So these these are two created dimensions, the heavens and the earth, on the same timeline, events playing out together on the same stage, if you will, the seen and the unseen, the heavens and the earth, the spiritual and the physical. One is not merely a type or a shadow or representation of the other. The two are separate dimensions on the same in the same created reality, by the hands of the same Creator God. He created the heavens and all of the beings that reside in that heavenly spiritual reality, and He created the earth and all of the beings that reside in this physical, earthly reality. If you'll look at Colossians 1.16, Colossians 1.16, I'll quote it here, For by Him... All things were created. Again, that's Colossians 1.16. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. So we have to remember that these rulers... These powers, these principalities created, they were both physical beings and spiritual beings. In the Hebrew, the spiritual beings are often called Elohim, some of which are angels, some are called seraphim, some are called cherubim, and if there's an I-M on the end of the word, it's plural, so you'd say seraph or cherub, but if there's the I-M, seraphim, cherubim, it means there are many. The Old Testament Hebrew uses the word Elohim, but it confuses people at times because this word gets translated in a lot of different ways depending upon which being is being referred to. So it can actually refer to an earthly ruler or a judge or a king because at times Scripture refers to a spirit being such as the king of Tyre, as in Ezekiel 28, you can Mark that down and go there and look at that later. Ezekiel 28 speaks of the king of Tyre. But then it switches the language over to refer to a man, likely a ruler that was being manipulated by that particular fallen spirit being. Sometimes the word is used for God, but He is the Elohim of Elohims, the infinite spirit among all others. Scripture says there is no Elohim beside Yahweh, meaning that no other spirit being compares to Him because only He is uncreated. He is infinite. There's only one sovereign ruler and creator of all things. He alone is the eternal and infinite source of all things. We know in Psalm 82.1, Psalm 82.1, if you want to jot that down, it says, God has taken His place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods. And that word there is Elohim. He holds judgment. In the midst of the the gods, in the midst of the Elohim, He holds judgment. So God interacts with these created heavenly beings 
as he interacts with earthly beings as well. You can jot down Job chapter 1. That very first chapter's there as the sons of God presented them before God in heaven and then Satan showed up as well. So to be clear, that one word Elohim can refer to any of these beings because it's a category title. They are spirit beings just as to say mankind or man or human means talking about us or earthly beings. Sometimes Yahweh um, calls... Sometimes that word Elohim is translated Yahweh, sometimes the sons of God, sometimes morning stars, sometimes hosts of heaven, sometimes the divine council, and so on. But we have to remember, of course, that there's only one Yahweh, there's only one God. So it's not equating when it calls them gods or translates them gods, it's not saying there's a plurality of gods. It's saying there's a plurality of spirit beings, but God is the infinite creator of all of these things. Do you understand? All right. So there's one Elohim, one spirit being, that is referred to as Hallel, and that means the light bearer. And never in Scripture is the word Lucifer found. The word Lucifer was actually added uh, into the text by a man named Jerome in the Latin Vulgate, and he took that, that phrase, the light bearer, and changed it to say Lucifer or Luciferius, and that's what we then have in our Bibles. But the devil, Satan, the opposer, the accuser, is never given a proper name in Scripture. He's just described as the light bearer. Hillel is described as a seraph, which is a snake-like being, or a cherub, which is a calf-like being. So if you will, he's a serpent calf, okay, in description. That's the way Scripture describes him. And he's described also as an ancient dragon, right? The ancient dragon of old. In his arrogance and pride, he stepped into the place of God, and in so doing, he fell. And then he tempted and caused the fall of Adam and Eve. And here's what I want you to see. We have a spirit being communing with mankind, and in so doing, they are disrupting the appropriate relationship of God's created order and the proper practices of worship between man and God. So they're disrupting both of those things. And the first time this happened, of course, the significance of, of Eden, the fall of man. And we see this take place. The second time this happened was in Genesis 6 when the Bible says the sons of God came unto the daughters of men again, spirit beings communing with mankind in such a way that they disrupted the appropriate relationship of God's created order and then disrupting the proper practices of worship between man to God. And we'll get to the third significant time this happened in just a few minutes. But just after the first time, just after the fall, we see this first outright prophecy regarding Jesus and His eventual coming as the Messiah through the seed of the woman to crush the head of Satan, to destroy him. Genesis 3.15, you can write that down. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, here's what it says. I will put, it, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the devil, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, or crush, 
crush your head is what it means literally, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Of course, talking about the coming of Christ. Now we know that the adversary, the Bible says, is crafty, a master of deception. And he used this prophecy to his own advantage by twisting it. Just as he did in the garden with Eve, hath hath God said, like questioning what God had said, and just in the same way that he chose to attack Jesus in the wilderness uh, when he was being tempted, he distorts and misrepresents the Word of God. That's what Satan does. So this leads us to our third significant time we see spirit beings communing with mankind, and in so doing, again, they disrupt God's natural created order, and they disrupt the practices of worship between God and man. Do you understand? Genesis 11, at the Tower of Babel. According to the Genesis account, it seems to be men acting in their own depravity and in their own ambition. But in Deuteronomy, we find passages that, like little breadcrumbs that kind of help us form this, this narrative that kind of makes the picture a little clearer, that it wasn't men on their own doing this. There was a spiritual aspect to it in that rebellion of Babylon. Before we get there, though, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 through 19, Deuteronomy 4, Moses is warning the Israelites of false worship. And let's be clear, that's what we're talking about here, the context of false worship. In in very much the same way that later we see Paul warning the church at Corinth and we see Paul warning Timothy. He mentions that these idols were allotted or apportioned to the people, these these beings. Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 19, he's warning them, and here's what it says. So keep your souls very carefully, since you did not see any form on the day Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, any fish that's in the water below the earth, lest you lift up your eyes to the heavens and see the sun or the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which Yahweh your God has apportioned for all the peoples under the heavens. So is this merely talking about male and female images of animals and birds and and the sun, the moon, and the stars. What we have learned, Scripture tells us, is that behind these false gods, behind these idols, they aren't just meaningless scribbling on cave walls and, and carvings of stone and wood. These represent these fallen spiritual beings, these gods, these little gods that were once worshipped. And I don't know if you remember the verse last week from Egypt uh, that we read about the Passover. In Exodus 12, 12, God says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and fatally strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the human firstborn to the animals and against all the Elohim of Egypt I will execute judgment. And it says, translated, against the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. So his judgment of Egypt covered the whole gambit, man, animals, and these spiritual beings that the men worshipped in Egypt. But before even that, these fallen beings were, being, were instrumental in the sin of Babel. 
Mankind had demonic inspiration to build that tower. Babel is the beginning of not only the demonically inspired secular humanism, which is in itself a false religion, but also the beginning of all religions, all religions, all false religions. It was the birth of Babylon, the anti-Eden, referenced throughout the whole of the Bible. And it's certainly this same type of thing is laid out by Paul in Romans chapter 1. If you want to go read that, that God reveals His judgment against a nation because of their worshiping of creation rather than the Creator. But in Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9, we have another breadcrumb, another clue. Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9. Remember the days of old, consider the years of all generations. So look back in in history is what he's saying. Ask your father and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of mankind, and that references Babel, he, He separated the sons of mankind, He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. So as a side, so you can write this down, Daniel chapter 10, all the way through chapter 12, there are references made, and it suggests that the nations of the earth correspond to angelic beings. There's a connection between nations and these angelic beings. The fallen angelic prince of Persia is mentioned in chapter 10. The fallen angelic prince of Greece is also mentioned in chapter 10. And then for Israel, we have Michael, the archangel, uh, mentioned that he's connected with Israel. But I want to boil all of this down for you just in case this has become a word salad and you have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of you guys are drooling and possibly nodding off by now. But I want to boil this down. In Babel, mankind once again sought to commune with false gods, these fallen Elohim. And in God's judgment, God scattered the men and women and children across the earth. But not only them, He also separated the Elohim according to to the number of the new pagan nations that would be created. Okay? And from that pattern of religion in Babylon came all of the false religions that followed. It was adapted. It was altered by various different cultures. But the seeds of it all were planted at the Tower of Babel. Again, God told the serpent in the garden that his destruction would come through the seed of the woman. So a woman and her child would be Satan's destruction. So what does the adversary do? He twists that prophecy and he plants the seeds of these new false deities there at Babel, idols, inspiring a new false religion that would be spread across the globe as God scattered the people. It's believed that in that city of Babylon was the inception and worship of the first mother-child false deities, the sacred feminine and her son. We know that when God scattered the Babylonians, the Bible says He also changed their languages. The sacred feminine mother and child went with each of the new scattered groups, the new nations in this dispersion, but they got new names. So later, as we look through history, here's what we find. In Assyria, the mother was called Ishtar. In Phoenicia, her name was Ashtaroth. 
In Egypt, her name was Isis. In Greece, her name was Aphrodite. And in Rome, her name was Venus. All the same woman. All the same uh, depictions of the same false god. Supposedly, she conceived a son named Tammuz, miraculously conceived by a sunbeam. So Tammuz didn't have a father, an earthly father. He had, uh, therefore, he was part of a counterfeit virgin birth, if you will. In Phoenicia, his name was Baal. In Egypt, his name was Osiris. In Greece, his name was Eros. And in Rome, his name was Cupid. Cute little cuddly Cupid. But that's Baal. It's all talking about the same false god. The, anytime the Scripture speaks of Baal or any of these idols, it's pointing back to these false idols. We incidentally, uh, which incidentally, by the way, if you look at throughout history, the depictions of Baal is um, often seen as a calf or a bull or a serpent or a dragon. But from among these pagan nations, and here's something that's really cool, among these pagan nations, these nations that worship these, these idols, these false gods, which represented the demons, God called out Abraham, come out from among them. I will make of you a new nation for my own possession. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. So there Israel's connected with God while all the pagan nations are connected with these fallen spirit beings. Do you understand? And the nations, they were then often referred to as Gentiles. There was Israel and then there were the Gentiles. Barbarians, pagans. And that's why Paul says the Gentiles sacrifice to demons and not to God. So Babylon, throughout Scripture, references the rulers and the leaders of mankind, the nations drunk on their own power and in an unholy alliance manipulated by these fallen beings. They're connected. Any ruler, any leader in a place of authority can be susceptible to these deceiving spirits. In government, absolutely, absolutely, but also among religious organizations. So we've looked at the beginning. We see mankind communing with these fallen beings, with demons, and then we see God judging them. And then we see across the pages of Scripture the references to worshiping idols and being involved in the demonic. And even in the context of the New Testament church, if an unbiblical religious organization, many, by the way, call themselves churches, if they choose to drink the cup of demons... It means they will also partake in the judgment that's reserved for those demons in Judgment Day. The world leaders, the Bible says, who are drunk on the wine of Babylon, they're so clever, aren't they? These political leaders, they think they have all the answers and they seek to unite the world eventually under one global governance. The world religious leaders also. The, relig the religious leaders of the world coming together, drunk on the wine of Babylon, seek to unite all faiths into one religion under an ecumenical banner of love and tolerance. That's their mantra. Both will eventually achieve a measure of success in the end days. But just as they see the world unite under this one ruler, this one government, 
in seemingly total world dominance, which incidentally is what God first told Adam to do. To, he gave him dominion, told him to be fruitful and multiply. It's, it's hardwired into the heart of man to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. But these guys are doing it without God and in connection with these fallen spiritual beings. So they'll achieve this at some point. They will have achieved through thousands of years of struggle. They will build this new global tower of Babel a monument of human achievement that they believe they've done so without God. And their dominion over the earth and their religious unity, all of it will be achieved for a time. But they will see it disintegrate before their very eyes. The Bible says, as we just read in Revelation 18, they will see it disintegrate and come to ruin in one single hour. God goes flick and all of the achievement of men and all of the achievement of these false religious leaders, gone in one hour. You see, that's what's coming. So Paul is warning the Corinthian church to come out from among the pagan world. Be ye separate. Because they want it both ways. And they've wanted it both ways for some time. They wanted to hold on to their old nature, their gluttony, their drunkenness, their worldly philosophy, their feminism, and their sexual sin. Men that had a wife, they wanted to sleep with uh, temple, prostitute, temple prostitutes. They wanted their Kate. They wanted to have their Kate and Edith too. I couldn't resist. All right. Yeah, it's bad, I know. But woven within that was their desire to continue their old religious systems, their old religious customs and pagan practices. This was built in them. It was strong in them. Wicked worship practices. Paul's rebuke is harsh because he knows what is coming to those who are swayed by the doctrine of demons. He says, concerning spirituals, you cannot be ignorant. You have to know. You have to be aware that the enemy, the forces of darkness, seek to distort the truth. They seek to veer the body of Christ off course to worship in a way that God has not condoned nor dictated the church should do. And in so doing, they distort the gospel. And we see in Scripture that in the case of some of these things, those who practice such things can have the best intentions. Your heart could be in the right place, but you can be completely and totally deceived and worshiping the doctrine of demons. Some of the things I've said today are admittedly, they're debated amongst some very bright theologians, and we can have differing opinions about world history and and demonology and all of that sort of thing. But one thing we cannot afford to have a differing opinion about is this, that the enemy seeks to corrupt the mandate of worshiping in spirit and in truth. The enemy seeks to destroy the church. And if he can do it in such a way that you still think you're worshiping God, the one true God, but in fact you're worshiping demons, that's something that we have to be aware of and very careful of. There is only one God, and He will not share His glory, and He is the only one worthy of worship. Moses warned Israel 
Paul warned Corinth and Paul warned young Timothy, and we would do well to take heed to Paul's warnings as well. The religious practices of Babylon are at work within the world today in the form of humanism, human achievement in the form of ecumenicalism, which is just a fancy word to say all faiths merging into one single faith. But they have also seeped into many of our modern churches, doctrines of demons that build up the selfish flesh rather than building up a serving body, serving one another and serving God. So we should take great care in how we study through this next section of Scripture as I know some of the things brought to light over the next several weeks are going to be challenging to some. It may necessarily cause us to look at things that we believe and question why we believe it and question whether or not the things we believed are even biblical. Have we subtly been swayed by the crafty deception of the enemy, even in the context of the local church? Are we followers of Christ walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? Or are we simply just spiritists with a hodgepodge amalgam of pagan, religious, and superstitious practices? So I ask you to pray for myself and for Colton as we study to do so. Pray that God would prepare your heart for the truth and give you the courage to align your life and doctrine first and foremost with His Word. That as we consider spiritual things, spiritual matters, and we consider spiritual gifts, that you would take from it only what God's Word says and nothing more. Amen? Amen. We have to be aware. The enemy is crafty, and he seeks to destroy even this church. Before I close today, and I'm about to close, but I, I just want to say that the gospel is very clear, that you were born into iniquity. You were born completely set against the glory and goodness of God, rebellious in your nature. And you need God more than anything. In fact, you cannot have a relationship with God, the Bible says, unless God opens your eyes and draws you to Christ. So the question is this, as you hear the Word of God proclaimed, in in the truth that's being proclaimed, and you hear that there is a world beyond this world that we can't even see, that there is an eternal reality that each and every one of us are going to have to face. The question is this, do you know Jesus Christ and does He know you? Have you been caught up in religious activity, but you don't really know that you know that you know that the Holy Spirit of God has gotten a hold of you and your life is being transformed in a way that is earth-shattering. It's transformative. Because when God gets a hold of you, when the Spirit of God begins to work in your life, you can't help but change. But you see, you have to realize that first you're a sinner. You have to, you have to see the, the reality of your depravity and your brokenness, and how far away from God you actually are, and that you are hopeless without Him. And then you have to come to the understanding that Jesus Christ was the Son of God that stepped from His glory in heaven to this earth, and He took on the form of man, and He allowed Himself, 
in His creation, to be taken captive by His creation, hung on a cruel cross, and that wasn't the worst of it. That's, that's terrible. But the worst of it is that your sin, your depravity, your rebellion was laid upon Him on the cross, and He paid the price for your own personal sins. And the question today is, do you know that? Do you believe that? And have you come to the understanding that you are hopeless without putting your faith in Jesus Christ for eternity? You are hopeless. This is the gospel. You need Him. Is He calling your name? Is He opening your eyes? If He is, my prayer is that you would come to me and talk to me. That you would come to Colton and talk to Colton. Talk to your parents and you guys all come to me. Talk to your, your, your brother, your sister, your spouse and come talk to me. You see, there's coming a day when all of this world around us will cease to exist in what God's Word describes as an implosion of, of, of ther thermonuclear type brilliance. It would just melt with a fervent heat, the Bible tells us. And God is going to create a new eternal heaven and earth for those who have chosen, those who have, who have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, responded to God's, God's call, and they will get to step from this temporal life, this temporal world, and live eternally in the presence of Jesus Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. This is not fairy, fairy tales. This is real. This is real. Do you know Christ and does He know you? I want you to be certain of that this morning. Let's pray.